morning. No one's going to say good morning back. I need, you to, I need you to talk back to me. It's even okay to occasionally, you know, if you're agreeing with what I'm saying, it's okay to say amen. Um, it helps me. I will be a better preacher. I've told this story before, but a friend of mine, um, he was a young preacher, and he was preaching at, um, at, at Dr. King's church, which I, I believe is Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta. And so he's there, and he's nervous, and he's young, and he's preaching on justice, and he starts off very timid, and he says, you know, so the, the Bible, the Bible talks about, about justice. And there's, a, there's an, an elderly man in the church, one of the elders of the church, who yells out, help him, Lord, help him. And, 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 and my friend told me that, that by the end of the sermon that he was strutting around stage, and he was waving his arms, and, that, and the man in the front row was pulling it out of him. And so he went down afterwards, and this man was there in the years that Dr. King was the pastor. Um, and he's like, hey, I just want to thank you. That was so helpful to me as a, as a young preacher. He's like, son, you're not the first preacher I've raised up. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, feel free to talk back um, just if you agree with anything I'm saying. If you disagree, send me an email. Um, okay. <laughs> I want to talk. I want to talk for a while about Jesus. Shocking, I know, in a church. Um, we, uh, we've been in this uh, a series, uh, The Year of Biblical Literacy, and we spent, I mean, what, what we're well over half the year, um, primarily in the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament, partially because that is a huge chunk of the Bible, um, but also because it is one of the areas of Scripture that's often overlooked, right? We know less about it, so we know more about the New Testament, um, but we know less about the Hebrew Scriptures. But I want to spend some time over the next few months um, looking at, um, at the New Testament. And we're going to start off with a kind of a mini-series um, called um, The Character of Jesus, or The Character of Christ, um, because I think uh, if we don't understand who Jesus is, it kind of makes it hard to be a follower of Jesus. So here's what I want to do today. I want to talk about the Jewish educational system uh, at the time of Jesus. I want to talk about the definition of this word Talmudin. Um, and then there's these three ideas. If you want to write them down, we're going to explore them in more depth. But it is to be with, become, and do. And then hopefully we'll tie it together in the end with the challenge. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. A gracious God, we thank you for um, this beautiful weather today. We thank you for, we thank you for your presence that we felt during this moment of worship. Um, I pray that you would um, use the words that we hear today um, to make us look more like you. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in ancient Judaism, there were three levels of education. The first was something called Bet Sephar. And Bet Sephar was, um, was something that all uh, young boys in particular would go through. And it's kind of, um, I, I'm trying to think of the best, it's kind of like elementary school, but everyone would go through this same process called Bet Sephar. And during that, you would memorize, so think, six years old, you would memorize um, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. So like maybe Maybe if you have your Bible with you, if you flip, pick, or pull it out and look at how much text is contained, Genesis to Deuteronomy, that is a heavy load. I mean, think of that, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, learning that. And on the first day of, uh, the first day of, of Bet Sephar, the, the rabbi would come in and each young child would have a slate or something that they would use to kind of scratch notes on however they did it 2,000 years ago. And, and, and he would take honey he would take honey, which was one of the most exquisite things at that time, and he would then begin to put honey on the, the tablet. And then he would tell the, the young students to, to lick the honey, 
And then he said that, that the scriptures were like a sweet honey um, that you wanted to, to become part of you and you wanted to know. And that's kind of how they kicked off this process. Uh, there's also some kind of weird uh, phrases. There's one ancient midrash where the, uh, a, a rabbi says that they wanted to stuff you full of the scriptures like you stuff an ox full, which is kind of odd. But anyway, um, so now the vast majority of children were done right after that process. And th this isn't har a hard and fast rule, but most young, uh, most young boys would end this uh, training process around the ages of 10 to 12. Um, young women would then begin to have uh, babies around this point. So around age 13, young women would begin to have their first child, which is how old we assume Mary was when she had Jesus or became conceived Jesus. Um, but th there was a second level. If you did well, uh, if you did well in the first level, you would go on to the second level of Jewish education at around the age of 12, which was called Bet Talmud. Um, I've got a new uh, iPad thing because we're having some trouble with mine went out this morning, and so I've got to learn how to use this, these new notes. Uh, so bear with me. So Bet Talmud um, was something that the, the, it was the gifted and talented program. And so if you did well in the first section, you would then go on to gifted and talented. Everyone else just kind of dropped out of school at this point. Um, and the gifted and talented would go on, and they would learn the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. So think... Genesis to Malachi. That is a huge chunk of Scripture. And they would memorize every word of Scripture. And not only would they memorize Scripture, but the, the rabbis would teach them to interact and to question the Scriptures. And they would teach them to ask a, or answer a question with a question. So it would be something like this. Um, the rabbi would say, this is not what they would say, but this is the best example I could come up with. Um, the rabbi would say something like, what's two plus two? And then the student would say, what is 16 divided by four? And so there is, they were learning, teaching them to ask questions back and forth, which makes it interesting when you're reading in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 46. It says, after three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So the chances are that, or we do know, because Jesus becomes a rabbi later, that Jesus goes to the second level called Bet Talmud. So he begins in Bet Sephar, then Bet Talmud. They know scriptures backwards and forward. Now, there was one more level. Now, nobody hardly makes it to this next level. The next level was called Bet Midrash. And, and if you made it to Bet Midrash, it was your process in becoming a rabbi. But only the best of the best of the best ever made it to this stage. And, and if you wanted to become a rabbi and you were the best and the brightest, like you killed it in Bet Talmud, right? You are the one who asked the absolute best questions. If you were a prodigal like Jesus was, you know, everyone is amazed at your questions and at your answers, you would then have, a pro you would have the possibility to become a rabbi. And what, what happened was there's all these different rabbis and each rabbi, this is what's so fascinating, each rabbi had what was called their yoke. Um, and their yoke was their way of interpreting Scripture and the way that you would live your life in relationship to that interpretation of Scripture. So maybe a list of rules or guidelines for living 
which then when you later hear Jesus say, my yoke is easy, right? He's talking about as a rabbi, right? So each rabbi would have their own yoke. And so in the same way that maybe if you were doing a PhD, you might look for a dissertation mentor trying to find someone who would willing to let you study with them. In the same way, you would look for a rabbi that you wanted to study with, and then you would try to convince that rabbi that you were smart enough to study with them. So you would you'd study with this rabbi, and they would, they would begin to ask you questions and say, what do you think about this? Do you think this is right? Do you think this is wrong? They would just grill you like crazy. And, and you would spend a few weeks' time with them. And at the end of this, this, this period of time, um, they, would, they would say, if you were good enough, if you were good enough, they would say, come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, beginning with chapter one. Verse 16. We read this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting, uh, casting a new net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said, come follow me. And Jesus said, I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When they'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out to the lake, well, out beside the lake, and a large crowd came out to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said, follow me, or follow me, Jesus told him. Um, and this can also, that particular uh, section can be translated, become my disciple. And Levi got up and followed him. Jump down now to chapter 8, verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the sake of, or for the gospel will save it. And what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, we can continue going through and looking at verse after verse after verse, but if you're noticing there's this theme, come follow me, come follow me, come follow me. And, and somehow in the church, we, we got this idea that, that all we need to do is like believe in God, believe the right things, maybe come to church on Sunday. If you're an extra good person, maybe you host a community group and give a little bit of money, and that's kind of what it means to, to, to be a follower of Jesus. And then, and then if you do all those things right, you check all the right boxes, hopefully at the end of time, at the end of your days, you'll go to the good place rather than the bad place, right? That's kind of how Christianity has been framed for many of us. It is, it is about living in a particular way, doing the right thing, so at the end of our lives, we can go to heaven. But, but when we take scripture seriously and the story of Jesus seriously, we see that being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus is so much more. And the refrain that we hear over and over from Jesus is this, come and be my disciple. And, and the word disciple, and the word disciple in Hebrew or in, uh, in, 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 in Greek is talmudin, right? So come and be my 
Talmudine. And what's interesting is that discipleship is not something that, is, that Jesus created, and it's not even something that rabbis created, but it's actually something that we find all throughout the ancient world, right? Aristotle had his disciples. And disciples were those people who would literally spend their entire life 24-7 walking along with their teacher. And another word, the, the best way we might be able to talk about disciples in our modern vernacular would be maybe apprentice, right? So, you know, there's a plumber's apprentice or an electrician's apprentice. And, and sometimes, like, the best plumbers and the best electricians or the best mechanics, um, like, it's hard to teach how to work on a car in a classroom, right? You can only learn so much in a classroom, but the real learning takes place on the job as you watch someone who knows what they're doing, who's done this for their entire life do this. And this is what the discipleship process looked like or what it looked like to be an apprentice of a rabbi. So here's how the process would go. Finally, finally, the rabbi would say, you are good enough. Come and follow me. And then, and then there was this like three-step process that you would go through. Um, your, goal, your goal was to, to live your life under the shadow of the rabbi. I mean, you would, you would yeah, I'll talk about this in a, let me, let me just, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, I do that sometimes. Um, so the three steps. First, the, your first goal um, as you're becoming, during this apprenticeship process was to become like or to was just to be with your rabbi i mean you would spend 24 7 you were with your rabbi all day long i mean at night you would sleep near where your rabbi slept in fact uh, a friend of mine tells a story that uh, he was told the story by a friend that actually saw this um there was a rabbi with some talmudine or some disciples and um rabbis have blessings for everything and, and it, they're in a bathroom and um the, the talmudine are kind of hanging outside the stall where the rabbi is in using the restroom and the rabbi comes out puts up his arms and says we bless you O god that are that we have holes and that they work and then, the, and true story, and then the Talmudine raise their hand, we bless you, O God, that we have holes that work, which, if you've ever had them that don't, it's, you, anyway, um, okay, keep going. Um, and if it was a good day, if it was a good day, at the end of the day, you would follow your rabbi so closely, you would have been so closely on their heels that you would be covered in the dust of the rabbi. There's even a, there's an ancient saying by an old, a, mid, a Midrash sage that says this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, right? You were so close to them. You spent so much of your day in proximity to them that you would be covered in their dust. Second, your goal was to be like your rabbi. Your goal is to become like your rabbi. So Jesus has this great line in the Gospel of Luke um, that, that a student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. That was the goal. You wanted to become and be like your rabbi. In, in, in D.C. Um, or New York or San Francisco or whatever the, kind of the, the hubs where young people tend to congregate, the goal is all to be unique, right? We want to be our own person. We want to be completely different from anyone else, right? They would have had no categories for that. They wanted to be a carbon copy of the rabbi. Next, next step. Um, so you want to first, what, so you first want to just be with your rabbi. 
then you want to become like your rabbi. And then finally, you want to do what your rabbi did. So there is a point where you are no longer the student and you are sent out. Um, in chapter three of Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus says that the end goal was to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. They were, they were doing what Jesus had been doing. And, and the whole point for Jesus' disciples was that, was that they would begin to do what Jesus had done. Okay, so we kind of get that. So the goal of, of becoming a rabbi um, was, or, or to, if you were a follower or an apprentice or a disciple or a Talmudine, the goal was that you were with your rabbi and that you wanted to be like your rabbi and then you wanted to do what your rabbi did. Okay, history lesson done. Now let's turn to Jesus. Goal number one. As, as people who claim that we want to be followers of Jesus, we throw this language around. Particularly, one of the things I notice that people love to throw around the language of discipleship, but no one really seems to can agree on what it means to be a discipleship or what discipleship means. Everyone has their own definition. And if you're really smart and you're really good, you can even write a book parroting your definition, and then there'll be a whole group of people who are into it. But I, but I think if we take, I think if we look at the life of Jesus, particularly against its historical context, we may get a glimpse of what it means to be a disciple. Goal number one, if we are going to be disciples, it's to be with Jesus. Now, those of you who are smart in the room are saying, yeah, but he, he, he isn't here. So it's kind of hard to get covered in the dust of someone who is in heaven. But yet, but Jesus has a metaphor for this. Jesus talks about, um, Jesus says that he talks about being with the Spirit, and he talks about like the branch abiding in the vine, being connected, the Spirit being that thing that connects us with the heart of Jesus. A branch abiding or remaining in the vine. And all throughout church history, we've used all sorts of different language for this. Um, Paul talks about pr it as praying without prayer, without ceasing. Um, our Catholic friends call it contemplation or contemplative prayer. Um, there's, a, there's a book, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a medieval mystic by the name of Brother Lawrence. He has this incredible book called Practicing the Presence of Jesus. This is, what, this is the reason that we have spiritual disciplines. This is the reason that we pray and we take quiet time. This is the reason that we read scripture and that we fast and that we take a Sabbath. These are all practices that we have to connect our hearts with Jesus, to be with Jesus. One of the most impactful sermons I ever heard was by Tony Campolo. I was a young sophomore in college and I sat on the front row and if you've ever seen Tony speak, he likes to spit. I, say, I, I, I like to say that Tony baptized me. <laughs> but I still, remember, I still remember as a young sophomore in college, Tony talking about his morning practice. He says when he would wake in the morning, he would lay in bed, and before he would get out of bed, he would just repeat the name of Jesus. And he would drive out every other thought, and he'd just say, Jesus, come. Jesus, come. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He was aligning his heart. He was being with Jesus. Other people throughout church history have used what's called the Jesus prayer, which is just continually repeating, right? driving out other thoughts and just keep saying, um, Lord Jesus, have mercy on a sinner like me, or some variation of something like that. There's all these different practices. There is, a well of, there is a well of knowledge from all sorts of different Christian traditions on how we are with 
Jesus. That is, what it, that is what it means to be with Jesus. And that's the reason we have spiritual disciplines. The, the problem is, is that the church has made spiritual dis- disciplines into this legalistic thing. And we who are in D.C. who tend to skew towards type A personalities, we love lists, right? So we, we need to pray to be close to Jesus. Check. We need to read our Bible. I've got it scheduled between 9.50 and 9.57. Check, right? <laughs> And what ends up happening is these practices that are meant to be life-giving just become one more thing on our to-do list. Now, now I am, not a, I am not against scheduling your time to pray or to read your scriptures because the problem is if you don't schedule it, you won't do it. And what's on your calendar is what's important to you, right? And so, like, that's not a bad thing, but also being careful not to allow yourselves to make it just become one more thing, right? Got that done, check. Moving on to the next thing today. So, find some spiritual disciplines. In the back, we actually have prayer guides for the 21 days of prayer. Take one of those prayer guides. There's a number of different prayers. It talks about walking through the Lord's Prayer, right? You could begin every morning. Just take 10 minutes and just begin to walk through the Lord's Prayer. A number of you in the congregation use something called the Divine Hours. It's this great little book by Phyllis Tickle that has three prayers throughout the day. Um, Again, it's actually pulling on the ancient Jewish tradition of prayer three times a day. So you pray in the morning and the noon and the evening. And it's not long, right? But it's about constantly redirecting your heart, redirecting your attention to Jesus. It is about being with Jesus. So step one, we want to be with Jesus. And secondly, our goal as an apprentice of Jesus is to become like Jesus. Back in the day, the church had this term called sanctification, but it sounds really religious-y. But, but the idea of sanctification was that we were becoming like Jesus. We were being, becoming holy like Jesus. John Wesley, who's um, my theological crush, uh, John Wesley talks about sanctification as, as, well, he talks about like what it means to be like Jesus is having perfect love. And so we are being shaped and formed as we practice, as we walk with Jesus, as through this power of the Spirit works through our lives through these, the spiritual practices, our the goal of the journey is that we become like Jesus or that we reflect perfect love, right? Love of God and love of neighbor. And we want to be like Jesus. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is the process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Spiritual formation isn't a Christian thing, it's a human thing. We, the thing we forget, we, we sometimes kind of put spiritual formation in this kind of this box, but as humans, we are spiritual beings and we are being shaped and formed by something. You are all being spiritually formed by something. The question is, what is forming and shaping you, because we are not static individuals. We are, we are constantly growing and molding and shaping and changing, but the question is, what is that thing? What is the thing that's discipling you? Because something, you are being discipled by something. And it's not, it, it, it's, it, again, it's not about legalism, but it's about realizing that there are things that hold you captive. Whether it be, whether you are tied to greed or power or ambition or becoming rich or whether you're tied to 
whatever that thrill is that you are constantly seeking. Following Jesus, being with Jesus, walking with Jesus, being like Jesus is about being freed from these things that hold us captive. Jesus, the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' entire Sermon on the Mount, it, it is about there are these practices, there are these ways that we can live with our lives. If you play close attention to the Sermon on the Mount, you notice that, that it begins and ends with the idea of practice. Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And then he continues going through, like these are ways that you can live. And some people said, oh, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is just to raise the bar so high that we just all realize what terrible sinners we are and we throw ourselves in the grace of God. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture of a more perfect way to live. And he says, yes, we are all on a journey, but I am calling you to live in this way through the power of the Spirit so that you might look like Dallas Willard has this great line. He says, it's not about trying. It's not about trying. Because right? so many of us, what we, what we end up doing is we try to be better. We, I guarantee if we sat down, you could tell me a story like, you tried to be better about your devotions, or you tried to be better about being less angry, or whatever your thing is in life that is the, is the challenge. You're trying. But Willard says, it's not about trying, but it's about training. Right? It's about training. And so we are continuing to train ourselves. If you've ever run a marathon, right? Like, so for example, if I were to go out today, actually, if I trained, this wouldn't work, but let's just continue with the example. If I were to go out today and decide to run a marathon, I would not be here next week as your pastor. I would be dead. <laughs> Hypothetically, my friends who are runners tell me that if I were to commit to a training routine and over 10, 12, five years, whatever period of time it might take for me, I, too, could run a marathon. I think it's ridiculous, but because it works the sermon, I'm going to continue, right? Some of you are in this crowd, and you, you could stand up and say, I was you, right? I did not think I could run a marathon. In fact, the first time I went out and tried to run, I ran two miles, and then I collapsed, and I told my friend, you're foolish. But your friend was like, no, no, you can do it. Let's, let's keep going, and you keep going, and you practice, and you train. And then the next thing you know, you were crossing the line on a marathon, or in my case, it's a 5K is a big deal. <laughs> Walking with Jesus is the same thing, right? It is not about trying. It is about training yourself. It is through the practices of the, of the faith that you train yourselves to be more like Jesus as you continue to grow. It's not about the one-year mark or the two-year mark or the three-year mark or the four-year mark. This is a lifetime of practice and training where you are becoming like Jesus. So many of us want it to happen immediately. Goal three is to do what Jesus did. The central message of Jesus was that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, reorder your lives around this new thing, this new reality, this new reign that is beginning to break into the present. Right Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the old is dead and a new world is now possible. If we look at the Gospels, Jesus, Jesus does a number of things, right? Jesus preaches the Gospel. He preaches the good news. He teaches a new way. He heals people who are sick. He casts out demons. He does justice. He eats and drinks with people who are far from God. He prays. He prophesies. He stands up against religious hypocrisy and pride, and he speaks truth to political power. 
That's what Jesus does during his time on earth. And he calls us to do the same things that Jesus does. So if you're an apprentice of Jesus, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, the goal is to do what Jesus does. The goal of your life is to, is to bring healing in the places where there are brokenness. It is to, to cast out demons. It is to, to do justice and eat and drink with people who are far from God and to pray and to prophesy and stand against religious hypocrisy and pride and speak truth to political power. And some of you were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Some of that stuff in there freaked me out. Right? I, I could go with you standing up to political power. What did you say? Cast out demons? That seems weird. We're not gonna get there today. But, <laughs> but again, it is not about immediately doing these things. It is about walking with Jesus to where it becomes where we begin to be empowered by the same spirit that empowers Jesus. And that we become a healing and graceful presence in our world. And that we stand up to oppressive powers with no concern for our own life. Right, what makes Jesus so powerful, what makes Jesus so powerful is he says, do the worst that you want to me. Because the God who created everything has my back. And he's working to bring redemption and renewal to all of creation and invites us to participate in that redemption. So goal one, be with Jesus. Goal two, become like Jesus. And goal three, do what Jesus did. I wanna talk though, just for a moment, about the most powerful part of the Jesus story that I think we forget. So in the ancient days, if you wanted to become a rabbi, you had to be super smart, you had to be at the top of your class, you had to be the best of the best, and then you had to go and find a rabbi who agreed that you were as good as you claimed you were. And then, even then, even then if you got a hearing and you got to spend a few weeks, the chances were that the rabbi would say, no, go home, you, 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 don't, you, you don't have what it takes. But Jesus flips this on its head. People are, people, Jesus goes seeking people. Jesus begins to tap people on the shoulder, common, ordinary people who are like fishing, who are fishermen, and doing all the things, and sitting at the tax booth, and all the other things that Jesus' disciples were doing, and Jesus comes and taps them on the shoulder and says, come and follow me. There's this great verse um, in one of the epistles, or actually no, it's in one of the gospels, and I don't remember the exact verse, but, but it says that the disciples were ordinary, and, and literally the, the, the root word for idiot is, is there, idiotis. The disciples were ordinary idiots. It's in the Bible. They were just ordinary, average, everyday people that Jesus taps on the shoulder and says, I am calling you to do something extraordinary. Some of you, some of you have been, have been playing around with this Jesus thing for a long time, partially just because you grew up in a Christian home, right? You, you have, um, you did the right things because you were a good kid and you knew how to check all the boxes. But you've really never figured out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And others of you, others of you are sitting here and, and this is like you came because your friend said they have great coffee and you wanted to see if that was true. 
Our church exists to call people to become followers of Jesus. Just ordinary folk that Jesus taps in the shoulders and says, come and follow me. And together we will do something extraordinary. And so this, this morning as I, as I end, I want to challenge you. I want to call you to become a follower, to become an apprentice, to become a disciple of Jesus. Now, in, in the tradition I grew up in, we used to do these things called altar calls, and people would come forward. It's weird and freaked people out, so we don't do that. <laughs> but there is something powerful about having a moment in time, a day, that you can look back to and say on that day, in that room, I decided that I wanted to be a disciple. I wanted to be a follower of Jesus. And no matter what happened, there was no turning back. So what I'm gonna do, I just want us to close our eyes and I'm gonna say a prayer and I'd invite you, if, if, if you wanna make that commitment this morning, I'd invite you to, to make that commitment along with me. Would you pray? Father, we come as ordinary people from all different backgrounds and all different walks of life. Some of us have lots of privilege and some of us are wondering where we're going to sleep tonight. We're just ordinary people. But we want to follow you. And so I just ask that those of you who are making that commitment that, that you can just, you don't have to repeat this out loud, but you just say these words to Jesus. Dear Jesus, I, I am answering your call to follow you. No matter what happens, no turning back. I repent of the past and I invite your salvation in my life. And I am committing myself to become your disciple to be with you, to walk with you, to be like you, and to do what you did. On this moment and this day, I am committing my life to you.